And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman. Uh, Stu Mandel, my colleague, will join us in a little bit. But before we get to Stu and the mailbag, uh, we have an interesting guest, especially if you are a diehard football fan who loves X and O's and talking scheme. Uh, we're going to be joined by Mike Kuchar. He is a coach, but he also dabbles in uh, writing. And he has a very cool site called X and O Labs, uh, where they... It's really a site for football coaches, and he'll tell he'll explain more about the site and and the work they do. But this year, uh, they just did a report on big trends in football and things we're going to see more of in 2017. And I thought it'd be I thought it'd be really insightful if we could have him talk about that and also some of the coaches who are who are on the sharp end of the curve and doing some really innovative things and forcing the rest of their coaches brethren to react to the changes they're making so with that let's get to our guest and now we are joined by mike kuchar my old colleague from my espn days who is the one of the brains behind x and o labs so let's talk a little bit about this uh research and work you've done with the help of a lot of college football coaches about trends that are coming to the mainstream I mean, is it even that the fairest way to put it, or is it stuff you you think we started to see a little bit, and now here we're going to see more of the answers and the counterpunches to this stuff? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Bruce. I think it's mainly a situation where now these concepts have been developed. Now they're tweaking them and moving them forward. You know, I remember two years ago in 2014 when we first put out our first RPO study, it was kind of all the rage in college football, and it trickled down, and now it's at the point where, well, I would say a good, Three-quarters of most programs have RPOs in their system. Now the issue is defenses, they've caught on. So now there has to be other ways or other things to dress up those schemes to be successful. And that kind of – so I would say it's more of a counterpoint thing where, where defenses have caught on, now offenses now have to progress to see what the next stage is in the progression of the concept. So when you're talking about RPOs, just for there are listeners who may not be familiar with that, it's run-pass options – uh, a lot of people tend to associate that with, with what Gus Malzahn was doing at, at Auburn. Certainly, uh, Hugh Freeze and Ole Miss had a lot of success. Who are some other Power Five schools that you say were really on the forefront of that? Uh, of that, Oregon, I would assume, is also in there as well. Obviously, yeah. I mean, I think Texas A&M has to be up there, especially um, you know what they're doing now with um, with Noah Mazzoni, what, what kind of what he's put together offensively. I think. Um, Certainly has put Auburn in the mix. I think, you know, from what I've talked to, there's there's pro-style offenses that now have implemented some of these concepts, like a Florida State offense. You know, they're, they're doing some of that now. Um, there's there's mid-major schools or lower-level FBS schools like Tulsa, who we've spoken to, have done some of these things. So, um, like I said, you'd be hard-pressed to find a program now. And, of course, I should mention SMU, okay, what they're doing now. But it, 
it's, it, you'd be hard pressed to find a program who's not utilizing at least some of these RPO concepts into their everyday offensive play menu. So where it really gets people, I should mention Penn State Joe Moorhead as well. When his when coming over from Fordham, he's developed that offense into more of an RPO based offense as well. Yeah. So for a lot of people, are maybe you know, kind of where it puts people in a bind. It's just like you know, you have three yards where as opposed to one in the NFL. Where linemen can go downfield, and it, you know, sometimes it gets stretched. <laughs> yeah. and that... it's, it, it's supposed to be three. But talk to a lot of the defensive coordinators that we spoke with, and there's a lot of gray area between that three yard rule. I mean, to the effect where there's not much they could do to stop it if they are keying on the front surface, those alignment, which is why in that trend five we put together, we felt the big trend now was what you're teaching your back end and your safeties especially in two high safety coverages, are you teaching them to read linemen? Because if you are, that's no longer valid. It's not. It's a key breaker because they are lying. I think, you know, Van Malone at SMU, who's the easy defensive coordinator there at SMU, he sees it every day from his offense, and he told us flat out, those guys are lying now, those offensive linemen. So now they're going more to keying actually the demeanor of the receivers to determine whether they're going out for a route or whether they're blocking them in a run. Okay, so you mentioned Joe Moorhead. He was a revelation, certainly for Penn State football in the Big Ten. He was the guy who had been a head coach at Fordham, uh, had been the offensive coordinator at UConn, but nobody really knew too much about him. And then all of a sudden they get rolling and go on to win the Big Ten. They beat Ohio State, all these amazing things with that offense. A big departure from where they were before he was there, and certainly even with Bill O'Brien, as somebody from the Northeast as you are and knew Joe Moorhead before he got to be you know, famous in college football, how different is he compared to what they had there, and what's that persona been like, you think? Very different. I mean, I remember the first time I heard Joe Moorhead speak was about four years ago when he first got the head job at Fordham. It was a clinic in New Jersey, and there wasn't a dry pen. Uh, people were writing everything. He came in there. He talked for an hour. He spoke about how he reads defenders. He talked about how he ties into his his past concepts with his tempo offense. He talked about, you know, RPO things before they became what they are now. So you knew right away they were building something at Fordham. I didn't know it would transpire to where he is today, but Fordham football was not what it was until he took that job. And year by year he built that offense and in turn built that program into one of the more dominating programs offensively every year. And when you look at that Rose Bowl game, which is a tremendous game in itself, you see Penn State coming out in two-by-two and three-by-one sets the entire game. They did not change much formationally, but their reads changed, their concepts changed, and how he's able to put as much as he does into an offensive system and still keep it simple for the kids just based on a couple formations, I think – really is at the crux of his success. But when you talk about Fordham, and they did a great job this year. We worked with them on a couple other things. Um, their, their offensive coordinator, Tyler Bowen, just took the offensive line job in Maryland. He did a great job for them this year running the football. So they run the football, too. It's not just about RPOs and throwing the ball downfield vertically. They could, you know, they're a big zone team, and they've done that. And what you mentioned Gus Malzahn, what, what Joe Moorhead has done now at that level, he's infused that H or Y off formation which he kind of started for them, and that's a big trigger now for him. And It's basically a two-back offense under the guise of a one-back formation. So 
all the credit to him and what he's done there. He's brilliant offensive line. Was he doing? You know, he had been Randy Etzel's offensive coordinator at UConn. Was he doing a lot of that stuff back then, or was it stuff that he developed at Fordham? Uh, no, I, I think once he was once he, he he recruited his players at Fordham, and once he got his players in that system, I know they always have a dynamic tight end who's that H or Y off player. Andrew Bryan is now the head coach there, a young guy. He was the offensive coordinator under Joe Moorhead. He had another good year this year. But anytime I talk to Andrew, he always talks about the tight end position. And they have one of the best backs. I don't know his name, forgive me, but they have one of the best tailbacks for them right now at that you know FCS level. Uh, he's a two-time All-American, I believe. So it's just recruiting to that style now. And once he was able to do that, it kind of took off. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see how he has become, you know, one of the rising stars. And it's not like he's like 35 years old, but, you know, he it was an interesting move to leave Fordham to go there. Obviously, it paid off. Um, And now so so with these kind of counter punches that are coming up. So what are some of the stuff you've seen as the best answers that people have found to this influx of RPOs and all the variations they're doing it. With. Now, are you talking answers defensively or offensively? Defensively. What they're doing is, you know, and this is kind of things we wrote about with the, the trends report, is they're going to more man-covered structures. Well, two things. One thing is they're going to man-covered structures where it's the simplest way to play. Everyone's got a man. Let's line up. Let's play football. We'll play with a high safety to protect us for any deep balls, and we'll play with six in the box so we can account for the quarterback in the run game. So that's option one. Now, if you don't have the dudes or you don't have the talent to match up man-to-man, now coaches have been a little more sly in putting together what we're calling bracket coverages. You know, and the safeties coach, Woody Blevins at Northern Colorado, the safeties coach there, did a great job for us putting a piece together on some of his two high bracket concepts, where now he is tying in the outside linebacker and the safety to the two-receiver side to react versus run and pass based off the movement of that slot receiver. So it's a really unique deal in terms of it, it, it can come into form a man coverage concept, but it could also be zone concept where you could get a bracket coverage on a dominant slot receiver. So now you don't have to go two-on-one. You don't have to go one-on-one. You could go two-on-one based on his reaction. So I think that's what defenses, they're kind of teetering. Do we have the dudes to play man coverage? Okay, we're good. If not, well, we've got to find a way to play too high, protect the vertical pass game, but yet account for those safeties in the box as run players. One of the guys I know who who's a big RPO guy, and he said, uh, I asked him about about some of this. We talked about uh, the the work you guys done, and he said one of the things we see is uh, teams would just really play three double cloud where they're just dropping eight, and it's like you know what, we're gonna have to just run the ball down their throats, kind of thing, you know. And and that was something. It's it's kind of a pick your poison thing where it's like okay, they're gonna take this away from us, so this should be our our solution. Yeah, and you know what, Bruce, if that's happening, you talk to most offensive coordinators, they're okay with taking the run component. And like you said, keep pounding it and keep pounding it. And, you know, the best ones around are patient, and they'll, they'll get what they need out of it. But, I mean, that, that certainly takes the, the pass element out of it. But you have a dynamic running back, you could run the zone play, and there's gaps that are not accounted for there that you could attack the defense with. Yeah, and by the way, just to catch up on something, that running back from Fordham you were talking about is Chase Edmonds. Uh, Correct. Really productive guy. I think he's from the same part of – Pennsylvania is uh, Shady McCoy and a lot of really good players. Good talent comes out of there. Um, so what else jumped out at you from, from the stuff you guys have heard? You say, okay, these are things we're going to see a lot more of in 2017 across the country. Well, we talked about man coverage and defending RPOs. So now, like you just mentioned, counterpoint. So now we have the whole situation where, okay, offenses are now devising 
their concepts to have specific man-beaters. And one of the coaches that did a great job of presenting his material is Brent Deerman, who is the offensive coordinator, Division II Arkansas Tech University, who, by the way, was an offensive analyst under Gus Malzahn at Auburn. So, I mean, he's well-schooled and he has the acumen and the pedigree to kind of put these things together. And what he's doing is every concept has a built-in man-beater. So when he goes to the line of scrimmage, he'll teach, this, he'll teach his quarterback there's one side that's the man-beater and one side that's the RPO. So if he likes an advantage he has against a particular D-back, he has a man-beater to that side of the formation. If he doesn't, he goes back and he RPOs the other side of the formation by influencing either a, a, a high safety or an outside linebacker like in a 4-2-5 scheme. So it's all built in, which I thought was really unique. Most coaches are going to that and kind of form of structuring their offense where they have a man-beater in case they do see man, because really that's what you're seeing now to defend these RPOs. Uh, from a... and, and the beauty of that, Bruce, is that it, there's so, most coaches have man concepts. So all they're doing now is they're marrying their man concepts with their RPO concepts. So it's a, it's a, it's a pre-snap decision under what side they're going to choose to exploit the formation. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about some of this stuff defensively that you've seen as people have tried to say, okay, this is what their answer is going to be. We do not have the personnel on the outside to try to to deal with this. Is it a matter of just almost like slow playing it and say, okay, we're going to just, you know, we're just going to sit back and make make you dink and dunk us kind of through this? So, you know, it's a good point. Our next special report we're working on is a, a man cover one special report where, we're specifically going through references. You know, we have 60,000 coaches in our network. We're going through the references of defensive coordinators that have played RPO successfully in the past. And the whole premise of this study is what do you do if you don't have the dudes or you don't have the talent to play man? And as I'm working through this thing, which I started last week, I'm, i got to tell you, there's a lot of coaches that buy into the man philosophy where they say, well, hey, you know what? Even if we don't have the athletes, we could teach players. We could teach DBs to get their hands and disrupt routes. We could teach DBs to get their eyes right and their safeties right to protect inside or outside leverage. So it doesn't necessarily mean we'll, we'll have a quarterback make a throw one-on-one. You know, we'll add on another rusher like an inside linebacker if the back sticks up and protects, and we'll come with him. So, they, you know, i got to tell you, from what I've heard, I think they're willing to take risks against these offenses. I feel like they know it's a lose battle. They can't sit there and they can't just let them go down the field on them. They're, they're going to try to kind of disrupt the decision maker, which is the quarterback. One of the downfalls of the RPO, at least a post-snap RPO, is that you put the decision on the quarterback. And at the high school level or college level, these are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids, and they have to make a decision in real time based on the movement of a particular defender. It's not easy to do. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing a lot of them probably worry about is Mr. Simons. And is this guy going to bust? Is that, you know, can we trust this guy out there? I, I feel like that's right. a constant, right? And So what they're doing now is now they have integrated a pre-snap RPO module into the offense. And this has been done. You know, Joe Tiller was doing this at Purdue. I mean, this is nothing new. But now, and you know, the, the study we did with Phil Longo, who's now the offensive coordinator at Ole Miss, now what he's doing is he's just making a pre-snap decision. So just based on numbers, leverage, and grass. So now you take that post-snap decision off the quarterback and you say, okay, I got room to throw the slant. I'm throwing the slant. I'm going to negate the run play. Oh, I got, I got outside space and I can throw the out. I'm going to throw the out and negate the run play. So this is all done pre-snap. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now He doesn't have to read a defender. 
So right. the quarterback knows if he has room to throw the ball just based on if he has space. So he doesn't have to read a defender. If he knows he's got the slant or hitch and off coverage, he throws a hitch. And it sounds simple, but you'd be surprised how many of these offenses are making a lot of money and yardage off simple decisions by the quarterback like this. Well, this was a big thing for Leach for years, right? It was just about the timing between everybody. Yeah, and then, you know, Phil's an air raid guy, and, you know, Mike's and Coach Leach is an air raid guy, so it all started from there. But, I mean, that's, I feel like some coaches are going back to that, especially at levels where they they can't recruit the kid. Maybe they're lower-level college, and they, they don't have the quarterback that could be an RPO quarterback. But they still have to get them into making the best play at the line of scrimmage. And you do that by doing the pre-snap run-pass option stuff. Yeah, one of the best things I thought I've read X and O's wise on the internet in a long time, it was before Virginia Tech was going to open up against Boise State. You got to spend, you know, you had great, shockingly good access to uh, to the Virginia Tech staff to basically talk about Boise State and Chris Peterson's offense. And you broke it down in a way people can still find it on the internet. I think you ended up writing it for for Chris Brown's smart football site. It's very accessible. It's you know sometimes I know a lot of the stuff you're gonna you're you're talking about is probably way over some of our our listeners' heads, and and hopefully they'll go to check out your your site where they can look at some of the diagrams and it's a little easier to digest. But you know it really explained the Boise offense and what makes it so so dangerous and and potent. But I thought it was interesting towards that end when we all this tempo offense. One of the things you, you're tackling in these 2017 trends is unbalanced, and that played a big role in in uh, the new LSU offense coordinator Matt Cannon, who had a lot of success at Pitt. So give people a little better idea of how that has taken off, or how that kind of impacted people this year. Okay, now I will say we haven't completely studied everything Coach Cannon has done. We're going through second sources who have now tried to implement his system into their levels. But from watching his film, what I'd see him do a lot of is that he plays with tempo, but he plays with tempo and is able to get into unbalanced formations. When I did that piece on Boise, I mean, we all know the Boise story, the Oklahoma Fiesta Bowl, the whole deal. You know, Coach Peterson was able to do that, but he wasn't doing it with tempo. Now, Coach Canada has find, oh, found a way to simplify the communication process with his players where they're able to move pre- and post-snap quickly to get into advantageous formations that the defense cannot account for. And in that trends report that we put out, there's an example on there of a jet sweep concept. Now, everybody runs jet sweep. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned Auburn. It's the, same, it's the same thing as the Cam Newton power read. It's the halfback element, fast flow, where he's getting to the sideline. But now what Coach Canada has done, he has found ways to formation that play where that player will start in a slot alignment. He would motion back across the formation, and what that does, it tightens up that apex or that outside linebacker, and then he runs full speed at the snap of the ball and gets a jet sweep. And I think the clip that we put on there might have been a touchdown. But he's, you know, he's able to do that in a way that it's communicated quickly. There's another concept in there where he has seven linemen to one side of the formation. Seven. Now, I know when we did the stuff, you know, when, when uh, Coach Bloomgren, when, he was the, uh, when he's the offensive coordinator now at Stanford, he does a lot of the Balco package. That got popular where they have six offensive linemen to one side of the formation. He took it one step further and went seven. Now, how could you account for that defensively? You just have to get aligned quickly, and then he ran a simple toss play. He had enough blockers, and it was a big game. So whatever he's doing, he's getting it communicated quickly, 
and he's repping it enough where players are comfortable getting a line before the ball is snapped, and it's it's amazing watching kind of what he's done. Yeah, it's funny. When, you, when I first thought of the unbalancing, I remember when Eric Winston was a lineman at Miami. He's been in the NFL for a long time now, but uh, he said Miami had some success. I want to say they were playing at Virginia Tech one year where Art Keogh had basically took – they had a third tackle, and they basically lined him up. It was almost like because, you know, it was like, okay, is this guy a tight end or not? And they had success, especially in the red zone. Now, obviously, things have gone further down the pipe, and everyone's adjusted accordingly, and it's kind of, it's really taken off. And what's interesting, I thought, was, and I had asked you this question offline uh, earlier today, was, is this the kind of thing that is trickling down or trickle up? And I asked a very successful uh former head coach, I said, what do you think of this? And he goes, I think right now it's a trickle in every direction because the internet and YouTube makes tape so readily available, people are watching everything. Well, to that point, one of the other contributors to this trend was Terry Hesbrook, who was probably one of the most winningest high school football coaches in Michigan. And Terry's entire offense is based off of an unbalanced set. And he's a former single wing guy. Now, if you study the single wing, you know the single wing. I mean, yeah. That's an unbalanced formation. And that's still used. I'm a high school defensive coordinator. I see that at least once or twice a year. So that hasn't gone anywhere. So it's really kind of the same principles where you're forcing defenses to match numbers. But the problem is when you do it with tempo, the defense does not have time to make the checks before the ball is snapped. You follow? To make the right adjustments to get the numbers matched. You know, if you know they're going to do it, that's one thing. But as they're moving, you know, he must – these coaches have a package of unbalanced formation. You can't just have one. Like you mentioned with uh, Winston, they might have had one. Now, I mean, there's at least a handful of them that they have to – and you have to make different checks in the defense. And you have to do it quickly, especially if it's up-tempo. Yeah. All right. Well, look, I, what's the best way for people to uh... – to your site is really geared towards coaches, right? But I think it has, like I said, for diehard X and O's people, I think they'd be fascinated by what's coming and what's there. What's the best way for people to uh, to keep up with what you guys are doing? It's just you go on X A N D O Labs with an S dot com. There's a you go on the site. There's a way that you could actually put your email in there, and once your email is stored on our site, you get email updates every Tuesday in your mailbox. So we put out clinic reports, we put out special reports, we put out drill reports. Um, so every Tuesday in your mailbox, you will get football content from us. Maybe overload for some of the audience listening here today. But um, for a football junkie like myself and the coaches that we serve, there's nothing better than seeing that once a week in your mailbox and getting updates on different football disciplines. All right. Uh, we appreciate the time. And for people, I would say who really love the X and O's, your site is a must follow. Stu, I know you're not a gourmet, but you do like it when you, ha- you get to cook on your own, when you and you and the wife get to feel like you're, you're kind of not just living on take. I am and- a gourmet. I, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a foodie to be honest with you. You're not being honest with me and you're not being honest with the You're not a foodie. You're not a foodie at <laughs> I'm all. I'm not a foodie like an Andy Staples type foodie. You're not a foodie like anybody, man. I'm not <laughs> sitting around eating Domino's every night if that's what you're insinuating. I'm not insinuating that, but that doesn't make you a foodie if you eat PB and J or if you eat if you go to Quiznos instead of Subway. That doesn't make you a, a foodie. All right, well you want to know what I ate this week? What did you eat? 
chicken under a brick with roasted vegetables and Italian dressing from our friends at Blue Apron. Wow. Well, that's pretty adventurous. How long did it take you to make this? Uh, it took about a half hour, which is pretty good. And uh, I think we should mention, of course, that Blue Apron is one of our sponsors. We actually hadn't had a sponsor in a couple of weeks, and I was starting to get worried how we were going to uh, you know, keep the lights on. But uh, Blue Apron is back. And, you know, Blue Apron is the meal delivery service where a box shows up at your door with all of the ingredients and the recipes that you need to cook delicious dinners. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. You choose from a, a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you will never get bored. I know you. that's a big deal for you. It is. Your, we, your kids get bored. They do. They're kids. Um, the, uh, I'm trying to remember. There was like a pimento cheeseburger uh, recipe that they had sent us, and it was very good. I think my wife was pleasantly surprised how good it was. Um, but look, it's, I mean, they talk about new, new uh, recipes throughout the year. I mean, look at the menu this week. Fontina stuffed pork chops. You've got some seared salmon. Kung Pao broccoli, mushroom and broccoli casserole, and spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza. I know that's your favorite. Uh, well, I think the freshness is the key here, and, and when you have that, that's you're off to a good start. So, well, here's the deal: you check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free, plus free shipping by going to BlueApron.com/audible. You will love how good it feels and tastes. Create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That is blueapron.com slash audible. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, what do you say we get to the mailbag? Yes, let's bring Rob Stone back in to do what he does best. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. That Rob Stone jingle is really catchy and has really lasted us for a long time at this point yes i think i missed uh both he and uh he and our musician collaborator to that they were in my town for some soccer watching at a viewing party at one of the bars that i go to unfortunately i could not make it and and they were here in san jose at the same time as the uh san jose basketball regional uh there was the the u.s honduras match going on down the street these guys are busy right now um as always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. You want to read the first one? Uh, yeah, let's get to it. Okay, here we go. Um, this is from Dave in Las Vegas. With the new $1.8 billion stadium to be built in Vegas for the Raiders, it seems likely that the Las Vegas Bowl could be in line for a significant upgrade in prestige. What do you think the chances are of Las Vegas becoming part of the New Year's Six college football playoff rotation in the future? Yeah, this was the lead in my written mailbag this week as well. Everybody's fired up in Vegas. Obviously, everybody here in the Bay Area is not so happy uh, about the Raiders. But in terms of college football implications, so I looked into this a little bit. Uh, well, let's start with the Las Vegas Bowl. I think that's more realistic than a playoff game or a new year six game coming to vegas in the immediate future you know las vegas Bowl has always been pretty far down the pac-12 pecking order i want to say fifth the fifth number five pick right now against a mountain west team and you know that's all tied into how much money you can offer the teams and that of course is tied into in part how many people you can put in the stadium and sam boyd stadium i want to say is like forty thousand, 
maybe even smaller. I feel smaller. Ever been to a game there? Ever covered uh, a game Yes. There? Northwestern opened their season there on a Friday night way back in 2001. Uh, I once, Leach's second game was a Friday night game against UNLV. It was an ESPN game. And the sideline person was my pal, Jamel Hill. It was like 116 degrees down there. And I just remember watching her like, I was like, oh, this is brutal. You know, it was so steamy hot. I want to say they probably only had about 15,000 fans in there. It's been a while since UNLV's been very good, to be honest. It's been a long, long time. Yes. So if the Las Vegas Bowl moves into the new stadium... And the new stadium, obviously, an NFL stadium with luxury boxes and all sorts of new revenue sources. Then, yeah, theoretically, they could move up the pecking order. And frankly, the Pac-12 could use a better non-New Year Six Bowl. Right now, their number two bowl or their their first choice outside the New Year Six is the Alamo Bowl. Nothing wrong with the Alamo Bowl, but San Antonio is not exactly close to the Pac-12 school. So I think they would love it for the Vegas Bowl to be able to move up the pecking order. Obviously, I think... I think it's a it's almost a guarantee. I want to say guarantee. You know, I was I'm just going to say it's a no-brainer that the Pac-12 would move the football championship game there where they already play their uh, basketball tournament. Yeah, I know this from talking to one of the ADs or former ADs in that conference uh, that because basketball does so well there that football would be very desirable because obviously it's a, it's a prime location for people to get away for for 36 hours. Uh, so a much better stadium, that's, that would be a big plus for them there. In terms of the New Year's Six college football playoff, um, the next championship game is up for bid for 2020, which is also the first year that the stadium is supposed to open. There's nothing against it. They meet the, the uh, capacity requirement at 65,000. I would just be skeptical. I think there's a lot of resistance still in college athletics or a lot of sports gambling is still very taboo in college athletics. And um, I don't know. I don't know. if I think it will happen eventually. They already play, a lot of these conferences already play their tournaments there, or teams go there for early season basketball tournaments, but that's a different than having, you know, the biggest event of the entire year there. So, um, same thing with the NCAA and the Final Four. So, I think it'll happen eventually if, if in fact, the stadium turns out to be the, the you know, huge success that people are predicting, because obviously, you're talking about events that require 40, 50,000 people to fly into town, Vegas is a is pretty ideal for that. It is. Would you like to see this? Would I like to see a championship game there? One, at least one. Yeah, yeah. I would. Uh, I thought it was really cool. Tampa. That it was in Tampa this year. That it was somewhere different. And obviously, I think. <laughs> I mean, it would be it would be a heck of an experience. I, I don't know that the sports writers would get much work done that weekend. I don't. I don't think people really care about what the sports writers get. No, they don't. I'm. Uh, you know, they play every summer, right? On one of the big. Actually, there's more than one. There's there's a long period of time in July when all the AAU teams are in in, in uh, Vegas and mm-hmm. all the um, college coaches go there. And so the basketball writers who cover this stuff go there. And I've heard some pretty epic stories about it. It's frankly a wonder that some of these writers even make it to the games after some of the things that go on there. Okay, so we, we had a fun discussion in the last podcast about worst conference realignment moves. Uh, Joseph Sura, Stuart and Bruce, your recent podcast about... Conference realignment mistakes got me thinking. What about the Big Ten turning down Texas in the early 90s? The pluses were obvious, the biggest athletic department in the country with a great state for recruiting and TV markets, but the Big Ten has done just fine without them, and the way Texas often put their own self-interest above the Big 12 would probably conflict with the Big Ten's traditional one-for-all, all-for-one 
equality ethos? Yeah, you know, I think both are doing fine financially, certainly with their own deals. And, you know, that would be, I'm curious, if you put Texas into the Big Ten footprint, what kind of deal could Jim Delaney have commanded then, financially? Unbelievable. I can't even begin to think about what that would, uh, what that would have meant. Now, I think the Big Ten... I don't think I, I would not say the Big Ten made a mistake by not bringing Texas in. I don't think that would have gone. I, I think it's probably why good you, for. Why do you think they didn't make a mistake? I mean, the money would have been. You know, you're the same person who gave me a hard time for saying Rutgers can stink in football, but it's okay because they're getting money. So if we're all talking about the bottom line, and Texas would have come, we think logically would have commanded a lot more money for the TV deal. Why? Why did the Big Ten leave money on the table then? Well, first of all. It's it's unclear how serious that ever got. I mean, this was in the early '90s when the the old Southwest Conference was starting to fall apart, and everybody's kind of looking elsewhere. You know, it wasn't just the Big Ten that I mean, Texas talked to everybody. So I don't know how realistic it was in the first place. But look, the Big Ten has been has been the most lucrative conference since at least the early '90s. They are not hurting for money. I just saw a video the other day about what was like a. a inside Ohio State's $9 million golf facility. Think about that for a second. They have a, so much money that they can spend $9 million on their indoor golf facility. You do realize who who, who played golf at Ohio State once I do, month, I so. do. Um, it's I'm not sure. like this is just a, a random sport to them. I mean, they have like one of the two most famous American golfers of all time, so as an alum. I don't think many schools around the country could afford to do that. Hmm. So, But I, what I was going to say is I don't think it would have been great for Texas for exactly... The reasons he said, um, they would have had to be an equal, equal revenue. Uh, the Longhorn Network would certainly never have been able to come to pass. And but but also, if, if Texas had been in the Big Twelve when let's say when Mac Brown, I mean the Big Ten when Mac Brown got there, do you think he would have had a successful run as he did in the Big Twelve? I don't know. I mean. You know, obviously Michigan won a national title in that window. Ohio State won a few years later. You know, Wisconsin, you know, came of age in there. Penn State was better back then, you know, than they were. Um, the- by the time Mac Brown got to Texas, that was shortly before Penn State went through a down period. They would have done very well. No, but I do think that he, his program really thrived from being in a conference where when they are they in Oklahoma are clicking – they are the conference. But keep in mind, Stu, K-State was a top 10 program when Mac Brown was you know, starting to build that program. K-State was a powerhouse then. And Nebraska still was at the beginning of his. Yeah, so I'm not sure. Like, I don't know if I, I necessarily agree with with your positioning on that. Just Well, look, it was his period there, that, you know, that run in the, in the 2000s that kind of set the table for the Longhorn Network and everything that came after it. So. Hey, I want to I also correct you a little bit because I think you're selling Penn State short. Uh, before 2000, Penn State had had, just in the Big Ten, had had seven top 17 finishes. I, but I was thinking, so Mac Brown got to Texas in 98 when Penn State was still very much rolling, but I believe within two years they began that yeah, they, they started just yeah years. they started just started to say. So I don't but. know that Penn State would have been his problem. Uh, Ohio State would have been. Michigan would have been. Wisconsin certainly was in the mix then. So 
So it's a it's one of these fascinating questions. I will say, since we've recorded that podcast, I did think of at least one other mistake, and that would be the Big Twelve passing on Louisville when they had a chance to invite them in 2011. Yeah, that's a good one. Hey, before we move on, uh, so we were talking about the conference realignment stuff, and we were talking about Texas and Nebraska and their recruiting and. A blogger I know who had done a uh, a piece for SB Nation a while ago contacted me, Michael Bird. He actually showed me a, a uh, included a story he had done from 2013, uh, and the title is "How Does Conference Realignment Affect College Football Recruiting? Are the teams who switch conferences using a new sales pitch to bring in more talent?" And he kind of tackled it from different schools, Missouri. Uh, being one, Texas A&M, West Virginia, TCU, and Nebraska. Um, and he points out that, that Texas was a big state for them from 2007 to 2011. Uh, and obviously in the next two years was almost a non-entity. Um, toward that end, I went back and looked at uh, on Nebraska's site just to see. They list all their All-Americans. Uh, I thought they would have had more from Texas. I think they had eight. Uh, from I want to say from New Jersey, they want, they had like five. So I don't know. I I mean there were there was definitely prominent guys from Texas in the eighties and nineties, no question about it. Mm-hmm. But it was not. I don't know. I, it, was a, it was certainly a factor. I just don't think it was as much of a factor as as uh, maybe some would have thought. So anyway, moving on. Uh, I'm going to make another correction too because I remember this. Listener had sent in a question, and we weren't trying to pronounce his name. It is Kevin Quison, And hey, Bruce and Stu, so I hear all this talk about how the ACC is the best conference and the Big Ten is coming up while the SEC is falling behind. So my question is, how would you rank the Power Five conferences, and what would it take for the Pac-12 to climb up in the rankings? I, I don't know that it's a constant from one year to the next. I mean, I feel like only a couple years ago we were – touting the Pac-12, um, certainly when Oregon still was rolling and Stanford was rolling. Um, you know, I, I don't know that we said it was the best conference, but I definitely remember a year where the narrative was the Pac-12 was catching up to the SEC. I don't think the Pac-12 was particularly great last year. So I guess the question is, is more about just in general. I mean, do you think, let's, let's take a step back. Do you think... We all know the SEC was mediocre last year, at least compared to the past. But would you still consider it, in general, the best conference? Yes, but the gap has closed significantly. Yeah, that's why it's hard to answer these kind of questions, because I don't know that there is an obvious pecking order. But I would say that, you know, the Pac-12, well, okay, let me start by saying the Big 12 would be fifth. So the SEC, and then I don't know that there's much of a gap or a separation between the top four now the the big yeah the, if you throw in big 10 acc pac 12 i don't know if there's much separation there no i would agree with you i mean i think if, if anything what we've seen in the last four years is that the acc has closed the gap with with Dabo sweeney getting such traction at clemson and bringing in the players he has with jimbo fisher doing what he's done at florida state Bobby Petrino obviously has come on and built on what Charlie Strong did at Louisville. Uh, you know, so and I think that, well, Virginia Tech had had a great run under Frank Beamer. I think Justin Fuente in his first year was encouraging to show what they've done. And then you look at some of the bottom feeder programs traditionally there 
whether it was Duke. Now David Cutcliffe has made them respectable. I think they won 27 games in a three-year stretch at one point. Wake Forest isn't god-awful anymore. They had a nice bounce-back year. Now we need to see what happens from like Boston College and Syracuse. And certainly, I mean, the way Miami is recruiting now under Mark Rick, if he can you know, finish out this class – there's more reason for optimism there. So I would definitely make a case that the ACC has trended up significantly. And we've talked a lot about how the Big Ten certainly has with the influx of really strong coaches in that league uh, coming in. First Urban Meyer, then Jim Harbaugh, James Franklin. I mean, that's the, that's heavyweight guys right there for that league. I think if you're making an argument for the Pac-12, it would be the depth and in particular, I would if you look at them compared to the ACC and certainly the Big Ten, they don't have Rutgers. They don't have Illinois. They don't have dead weight, really. I mean, it was Colorado, and then Colorado went and had this great season last year. Oregon State's been struggling the last couple of years. But generally, that is not a conference that has a bunch of teams that just you can count on to go 3-9 and nine every year. But I would say... Yeah, I would make the case, like, there was a year when, you know, when Leach early on in his time, maybe in his second year at, at Wazoo... And they were terrible before he got there. Uh, they went to Auburn and almost beat Auburn in the in the opener. And Auburn was a team that was, you know, I, I think that was their Auburn may have played for the title. Right. I remember that. Now, I would say the flip side is if, if you know, you look at the ACC, Florida State, Clemson, national title contenders. We're going to count on them being national contenders. National title contenders regularly now. The Big Ten, Ohio State, Michigan, now Penn State's in that conversation. The Pac-12 recently has had Oregon, and that's about it. You know, Oregon's the only one that's played for the in the title game in the last eight years, yeah. if not more. Stanford's had a couple teams that were close to top four, but not necessarily national title. They need another powerhouse. Well, Maybe that's going to be USC under Helton. But, yeah, they need another team that everybody points to and says, this is a team that's going to be in the top five most years. Yeah, I mean, just having been out at USC earlier this week, I mean, that team should be a preseason top five team. I mean, you look at Sam Darnold will get a ton of hype, and he's he's a really good young quarterback. They have a very impressive group of skill guys. The part where I am not sure if USC is ready to be a, a real you know national title contender, I think they could win the Pac-12, but... You know, the gap between the, where they are and where I think Clemson and Alabama are right now, I didn't see those kind of guys in the in the defensive front seven. You know, I saw a couple of good players, but I just didn't see. And that's what USC had back when Pete Carroll had it rolling. And, and we'll see how close they are to getting that part back. I'm heading there next week. I'm looking forward to seeing, seeing them up close myself. Uh, all right. We have an old friend here, Jason Garluski. And he has thought to ask us a football question, despite the fact he is in the basketball capital of the world right now, as he lives in Columbia, South Carolina. Okay, the question is this. A year ago, everyone was picking Tennessee to win the SEC East. This year, people seem to really like Georgia's recruiting classes and McElwain's rebuild down at Florida. The main headlines I see from Tennessee is Butch Jones saying that his players are champions of life or that his recruits have five-star hearts. At this point, is Tennessee officially an afterthought? Do people feel that Butch Jones is still trending upward, or did Tennessee miss their chance to win the SEC East last year? And I asked you the question instead of vice versa, because you may be the one person left in America who thinks he's still trending upward. 
you know, I'm not going to say that I don't see them as the team to come out of the, they should not be the favorite to come out of the East. You know, they're, they have to replace a starting quarterback who'd been there for a while, even if they didn't love how, you know, how him as a passer, Josh Dobbs played pretty well for them. So now whether it's Jarek Guantano or Quentin Dormady, I think that's going to be a transition. We'll see how the new running back does. I mean, I don't, I don't know how comfortable I am about anybody in the SEC East right now. I think the jury's still out on Georgia. I think certainly the, the question marks are at Florida there too. So I don't know, you know, I don't see any top top five kind of team there. I mean, talent-wise, I think people are are optimistic about where Georgia's headed, but we'll see. I'm not I'm not ready to say that they're that they're a national title contender. I'm not even sure. I, right now, if you had to, if I had to guess, I would probably pick Georgia as my preseason team to come out of the SEC East. But I don't feel very. I don't. I'm not you know bullish on them. I, are you? No, the pattern. Well, I I do think they should be a lot better than they were last year. I think it's a big leap. Now it has happened. Second year coaches who who go from seven and five to national championship. I mean that's happened, but I'm not sure I see that just yet. But you know the pattern with the SEC East lately has been whoever is the preseason favorite is not going to win it. So that the, the the target is on Georgia's back right now, and Tennessee's flying under the radar. But yeah, you know I, I I've I've kind of thrown in the towel on Butch Jones. I, I don't see how somebody who's taken that much criticism uh, saves it at this point. Well, here's the thing. I mean, let me ask you this: Do you think Butch Jones was a bad hire for them? I mean, they I don't know if people remember how much disarray they were in before. They did win 18 games the last two years. By the way, they were in major APR issues before he took over. They didn't end up suffering with the APR issues. You don't have to sell me on what a mess Derek Dooley left that program in. I mean, that was a guy who was a, was a bad hire. I don't think Butch was a bad hire necessarily. I mean, they went this is in 4 years they went 5 and 7, 7 and 6, 9 and 4 and 9 and 4. The and they, problem is once you get to year four, people want to see that breakthrough. And it just I know, but it's, it's not like they went five and seven in year four. I know it was a disappointing year because the expectations were high. The, the part I, I think people need to keep in context was they weren't getting anybody drafted in his first like three years there. There was hardly any players. Can you imagine if you went back in time to when Peyton Manning and T. Martin were at Tennessee and I told you one day that Tennessee would go nine and four and you'd be selling me on, on what a great job that was? I mean, I'm not saying it's a great job. I'm saying, you know, it's it's compared to what it's been. I mean, he's definitely made the program a lot more stable and better than what it was. And again, I'm not sitting here and trying to try to tell you that I think they're going to be 11 and one. I thought last year they would have been better. And I, you know, but I wouldn't say the window is completely closed. Uh, What's interesting is going to be he's got a new AD, an AD who didn't hire him. And so I don't know how committed John Curry is going to be to there you know if butch jones goes eight and four i don't know what tennessee would do you know i think they would fire him at eight and four i think the more intriguing question is if it's about the same as the last couple if it's nine and three and they're playing in the uh citrus bowl or the outback bowl the outback bowl i mean that's a pretty good season for most people although i want to say that's about what georgia did when they fired mark rick so yeah my guess is he's i would be very surprised if he Returns it around. I mean, he, they maybe they're better than last year, but to the point where everybody's like, "Yep, this is the right guy to lead us going forward." 
how many how many coaches in that league do you think he makes uh, more than? Makes more than? Yeah. Well, everybody in that conference makes at least four million dollars. So, I mean, he may be making. He may. He is on like the bottom third salary wise. Is he? What is he at four million or no? He's at four and a half. But in that league, and that's almost, the bottom third. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, they haven't really had a reason recently to give him a big raise. But uh, as you learned last year with Dan Mullen, you know, you can get that raise by not doing as much as you would think. Again, I think it's a factor of, of what the expectations here are. You know, yes, what the expectations what people... are higher, considerably high. I mean, you know, it would be interesting I mean, if somebody, maybe we need a Nate Silver to do this for us. I would like to see a correlation between stadium size and patience with the coach i feel like the bigger your stadium is you know, maybe you only have a fifty thousand seat stadium maybe you're gonna let your coach slide for a couple bad seasons or more but you got a hundred thousand seat stadium you're trying to fill you can't afford to keep going nine and four for very long that is true i think that's the economic reality of it that is very true um by the way this is a i think this is an interesting question how many coaches other than Nick Saban, have won more games in the SEC than Butch Jones. Like total? Yeah. Um, in the last three years. Last three years. Well, that's probably going to be a pretty short list. McElwain? Oh, McElwain's only been He's there only two been there years. two years. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a short list. Uh, not not Bielema, not Malzahn. Freeze has. No, I don't think Freeze has. Really? I don't think. Because uh, Freeze had a 5-7 and seven this past year. Dan Mullen had a 10-win season in there. Yeah, Dan Mullen has not. He's won the same. Do you have the answer to this, or we have to figure it out? Uh, I'm figuring it out now. Freeze is the one question I did have here. Well, we've only got five minutes left, so Freeze gonna... did not either. Freeze won 24. No, the only one who's won more... Uh, is Saban? Is Saban. How about that? We are talking about a coach who I think it, it has very little chance of surviving, and he and but yet how the much how much Tennessee Athletics Department is, can put out a graphic how, right now that he's the second winningest coach in the SEC the last three years. How much do you think this is related to what Jason Gorluski just referenced, the quote unquote "champions of life" comment, and some of the things it doesn't help. That, no, it no question, it definitely doesn't help. But how much do you think that factors into it, where fans are like, "Please don't embarrass us with kind of." Um, clunky comments that they that they feel like um sit well if he never said champions of life i don't think his situation would be any different it's not that that's not the reason people are down on him they're down on him for losing to in a, in a season when they were supposed to be a top 10 team losing to vanderbilt and giving up a whole lot of points and doing it but then that's just kind of like piles on top fair enough this question is from eric in bozeman montana Hey guys, I was wondering your feelings on the marquee early season games being played at NFL stadiums. I know it is probably not going to go anywhere because they're making lots of money, but I feel it's a shame to get rid of campus games. As someone who watches a lot more football than I do, would you rather watch FSU, Alabama, and Atlanta or in Tuscaloosa or Tallahassee? Well, obviously I'd rather watch the, these games in their stadiums and on their campuses and the great pageantry that goes with it, but I think you have to... Kind of like with realignment, we were talking about you have to deal in reality. Uh, Florida State and Alabama are not going to play each other home and home. 
The reason that matchup can come together is because these neutral site games at these NFL stadiums offer them as much money as if they were playing a home game. So, so you know, this is in Saban in particular. I mean, this is their annual scheduling model now. Outside of the SEC, three home games and a neutral site game. And with the neutral site game basically giving you enough revenue that you might that it's the same as playing four home games. Whereas if it's a home and home, obviously that's one less um, that's one less date with a four or five million dollar paycheck. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, just give me the game. I'd love to see it. You know, I mean, look if you're if you're most of us are going to watch the game on TV anyway. So I, don't I know. think I think if it's you know obviously it it stinks for the fans. I think that they you know if, 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 that they don't get to go to their they're going one less week to their own stadium and their own campus. Um, but again, that's one less week that they would be going to see Charleston Southern. So I think if it's now, I, I do think not all these neutral site games are created equal. You know, we just talked about Vegas, like that's one other possibility, right? That Vegas with their new NFL stadium could have a Labor Day weekend game. And I think fans would flock to that. But some of these Jerry world games, not, not the, uh, not necessarily the opening weekend one, but where they have these random games there and like Texas, like whether Texas Tech is going to play Baylor there. Yeah, Texas Tech Baylor. Like, why does that game need to be played in Arlington? I don't know. I mean, they probably make more money than they do playing in Waco. Or yeah, because I mean, the reality is, if you're if you're a, you know a TCU or a Baylor fan to go to that game, you're going to go. You know, it's not like it's a long drive. It's not like you're going to play it in Atlanta for the Atlanta alums. I mean. You're catering to pretty much the same crowd. I think you just probably can have more people at the game. Last year, they played a BYU-Arizona game at in Glendale at the stadium where the Final Four is this weekend. And it makes sense for those schools, though Arizona did not. Uh, I mean, BYU outnumbered them at that game. Well, I think but, BYU is opening this year is against LSU, and I think it's in I think it's in Houston at, at the Texan Stadium. Yeah, Houston's another one where I'm not sure... I mean, they've done pretty well with that game. You know, it was a really cool one last year was Lambeau. Yep, you're right. Well, look, also the Tennessee-Virginia Tech game, you know, at Bristol, I think was very... Was that was that was a spectacle. That was that, that was something. I don't know that they're... Clearly, they're not going to be able to do that every year. But uh, all of this is making me think I'm okay with the neutral site games, frankly. But again... You just, you want, to not, see, you just want to see good matchups. I want to see good matchups and... Let's be honest. Like, it, we, you know, somebody's paying for us to go. It's not. Uh, it, it's easy for us to say, right? Oh yeah, play it anywhere. But for the fans who have to buy an airplane ticket and in a hotel room and all that, obviously it would be more convenient if they played the game at their normal stadium. Okay. That's all the time we have. Is it? Always, it is. We got a Bill Snyder question you're dumping out on. Well, you spent so long talking about Tennessee and Bush Jones that we just ran out of time. <laughs> you're an evil, uh, you know, you're really salty now. Somebody, by the way, um, sent an email. You remember the, you remember the question about the, or we had a discussion about at the NCAA tournament and and the Kentucky site that posted the video of Greg Marshall's wife. Yep. We got an email that was just titled "Stew's Integrity," and he just took me. <laughs> He just took me to town for saying that I would have posted the video, even though it was against NCAA policy, and for outing Jim Phillips, the Northwestern AD's son. He is—he was not happy with me. Um, 
sorry I didn't include that in the ones to read on the air. But if you've got a complaint about me, maybe that I'm too salty, you can send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.